Matthew 9 from verse 9. And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And it happened that as he was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors, many tax gatherers and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax gatherers and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Would you then also please turn to the book of Micah, to Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. That's the text for the sermon this afternoon. Micah 6, verses 6 to 8. Verse 6, with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not a God who is only concerned with and for adults and for their spiritual development. But Father, you also instruct children in your word and for all of us, you grant to us the help that we need, the help to listen, whether we are young or old, the help that we need to receive that instruction and to put it into practice. And Father, we pray once again today that you would give all of us, whatever our age, that same kind of help We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, there is, I believe, a lot of um, misunderstanding and confusion over the nature of the covenant, the covenant of grace. Just to uh, remind you of some things that we have uh, looked at before on this and summarised with it, but uh, essentially the covenant is an oath-bound promise which God has used as a strategy in order to resolve the problem of man's sin. And the promises of that covenant, in bringing that resolution to that problem of sin, the promises of that covenant, the promises that are sworn on God's oath, are centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. But, as many of you would know, the covenant also has obligations. 
commandments that are connected to those promises that on the one hand show us our need for the Lord Jesus Christ and on the other hand tell us how to express gratitude for that gift of salvation that he has promised. Micah, like other prophets of the Old Testament, had to remind God's people of these basic truths, basic truths about the covenant because they were straying from them. It is important for us to be reminded of these basics too. And though we may have heard them many times before, it is important that we remember these things and hear them again and again because we also tend to stray from these things. It's not just the people of the Old Testament, but we have that inclination as well. It's also good for us to do so on the occasion of an infant baptism, both to remind the parents of the basic things that they need to teach their children, that the Wonderworths need to teach Ari, but parents in general, and as a church, as we take part in that too, teaching the children of the church, those basic truths about the covenant that we need to bring to the children of the covenant. But it's also good to think about these things on an occasion like this to help us understand how it is that infants and children can be part of that covenant community under those covenant promises and those obligations when they don't even understand those things at their tender age. Two points as we look at this. First of all, the wrong mentality and secondly, the right approach. The wrong mentality and the right approach. In the first place then we find that the people of Judah, because Micah was a prophet to the people of Judah, Jerusalem, the people of Judah were coming to the Lord with a wrong mentality, a wrong mentality about him and about the covenant relationship they had with him. And the Lord therefore has a legal case against them, as it says earlier in the chapter in verse 2. And Micah has that role that the prophets so often had in the Old Testament. The prophets were like uh, covenant lawyers. They were prosecutors for God. And when the people uh, broke their contract, so to speak, when they broke their covenant agreement, more than a contract, of course, but when they broke it, then God often sent his covenant lawyers in to prosecute the people and to bring a legal case against them. And uh, that word uh, case, when you read that in the Old Testament, that God has a case against someone, uh, that's a legal word. It's a word that refers to a legal case in particular. And the prophet here, Micah, opens his case by putting words into the mouth of the typical member of the covenant community at that time in Judah. As if this, this typical covenant member is musing to himself and thinking, well, I'm going to the temple soon. What can I offer to God this time? What can I bring by way of a sacrifice out of the various options that were before the people at that time? And this typical covenant member then makes some suggestions to himself on the kind of offerings that might please God. And he runs through a number of different varieties. He says, what about this? What about if I bring a whole burnt offering? That's pretty impressive because the whole burnt offering, that's the whole of the animal. We're not shortchanging God here with a piece of an animal. It's a whole burnt offering. That's got to be good. That's a generous thing. Or perhaps even better than that, 
I'll bring a yearling calf, uh, that which was regarded as the best of the herd. I'll bring my yearling calf and offer it to God. Or maybe if that's not enough, maybe I can even go a step further. Should I perhaps offer that which is most precious to me, my firstborn son? Well, quite apart from the fact that human sacrifice is an utter abomination to the Lord, it was typical of pagan worship, such as worship of the, God of, the, God, the false god Molech, and it was the kind of thing that led God to say that a, a nation or a society had filled up the measure of its wickedness and needed to be utterly removed from the face of the earth, which has to make you wonder a little bit about where things are going to go with our culture, which is sacrificing children, uh, not to the false god Molech, but sacrificing children to the convenience of adults most uh, frequently. Uh, at any rate... Quite apart from that fact, the point here is that in one sense it doesn't matter how zealous you are when it comes to your outward deeds and the sacrifices that you make in order to offer something to God, even if it should be the greatest of sacrifices imaginable, even if you should offer 10,000 rams soaked in 10,000 rivers of ceremonial oil, even that is not enough in itself. The reason it isn't enough and nothing we can do and nothing we can offer is enough is first because of our sin. And verse 7 here makes it clear that this is an attempt by the covenant member, this hypothetical covenant member, to cover the sin of his soul and his rebellious acts, as verse 7 says. And this was typical of the covenant people as a whole at that time. And it's one of the reasons why the Lord had a case against them. That they were thinking in that way. They were thinking that the things that they were offering, the sacrifices they could make as outward acts, that that was enough to deal with their own sins and set everything right, no matter what else they were doing during the week behind the scenes. And they needed to be reminded that there is nothing great enough in this whole world, even if you should offer to God this whole world, if that were possible, there is nothing that is great enough for a sinner to cover even the sins of one man, let alone a nation, to be able to pay the eternal death penalty for rebellion against God. And the only one who can do that, the only one who has enough to offer, is the one who is both God and perfect man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who not only had the ability to make that kind of offering, but also has done so. Uh, there is another reason why these offerings in themselves are not enough. And that is the fact that uh, these offerings are, are not acceptable. They're not acceptable offerings if they're only made as mere outward acts. And it's outward acts, no matter how zealous, no matter how generous, no matter how extravagant those outward acts are, they are always uh, in themselves far less than what the Lord requires in the covenant relationship. A good work, as we heard this morning, and therefore also a good offering, is one that is lawful according to God's word, 
but it's also one that is done for and with the right inner attitude. And we'll look at that in our second point in just a moment. One that is done in faith and for the Lord's glory, those inner motives and attitudes. And it doesn't matter how extravagant you are in giving something externally and doing something outwardly, if you don't have that right inner motive, then you are not doing that which is required in the covenant. Because the covenant requires both of those things. And this was a big lack in Judah at that time and a big misunderstanding on their part. Now, applying this to our situation, uh, we could put it this way. We could say that there, there is no deed that we can do, no matter how zealous we think we are for the Lord. And you know the usual list, going twice to church on Sunday, generous donations, busy with evangelism, busy, busy, busy with church work, busy with school stuff and so on. There is nothing that you can do that can cover your sins and there is nothing, no matter how extravagant and time-consuming and full of energy it is, there is nothing that you can do that can earn God's favour and certainly nothing that you can do that can give you a licence to commit certain sins behind the scenes as long as you're doing all these other good things outwardly. And that is true not only in general in church life, but it is also true for the offering, bringing forward of a child in baptism. And uh, as you may know, there are many people of baptistic persuasion who believe that uh, what, what goes on, what is ne needed, is a dedication of the child. And uh, sad to say, I've sometimes heard reformed people say, well, that's just another name for what we do. The dedication, just another name for what we do. But baptism, including the baptism of a child, is far, far more than dedication. Dedication, though there is an element of that, is looking at it from our side, but baptism says much, much more than that from God's side. At any rate, if you would look at it like that, if you would see that and focus on that element, you make this great thing, you look at it this way as parents sometimes... God has done so much for me. He's blessed me so richly. He's given me this wonderful, lovely little child and now I will give something back to him. I'll dedicate my child to him in baptism and pray that his whole life will be dedicated to the Lord as well from that time onwards. And if you would look at it that way, then the same has to be said with that which is very precious to you, <coughs> that with that too... It's not going to go anywhere in itself to cover your sins. It's not going to go anywhere to earn any favour with God and it's not in any way giving any kind of licence to sin uh, during the week and behind the scenes and so on. And the same is true with your child. As your child grows older, as he grows up, being a member in a Reformed church, having been baptised, that in itself will not save him. Being a member of the covenant is in itself not some eternal insurance policy. And this is something that Christian parents really need to drive home to their covenant children. And I, I can't stress this uh, strongly enough. I think this is extremely important of the various lessons that you want to instill in your children. This lesson 
that comes really in the same line as this warning here with Israel and with Israel's history, this warning against empty ritualism, this warning against empty formalism or externalism or ceremonialism or whatever else you want to call it. Most important that we teach our children that it is not just a matter of the external things that we do and you do not make yourself right with God by being involved in the church and so forth, uh, important as that is, that uh, it is all from the grace of God in Christ. That is where our salvation comes from. And as parents, it's so important that we not only say that to our children and say it again and again to our children, but also demonstrate by the way we live that we really believe that, that it's not just a matter of going through the motions. And uh, on that score of going through the motions, I would say that uh, being marginally involved in the life of your church is one of the best ways to teach your children to be formalists. To give them that message that they, you, you just need to do the minimum, you just need to come along occasionally, be a member technically, and then everything will be okay because that's the way you're living as parents. But even if you would do more than that, even if you would throw yourself into the life of the church and, do, and put all your energy, everything you can into it, into serving God in the covenant community, and give that example to your children throughout their lives, which really is what the example parents ought to be giving. But even if you would do that, how important it is still to remind them that even that, even that commitment as a deed in itself is not going to earn or deserve God's blessing. It's always a matter of grace. What then in the second and final place is the right approach, the right view of covenant membership and its requirements, given that no deed is meritorious and given that the whole idea of externalism ought to be ruled out completely. What does the Lord require of you? Verse 8. What is the right inner attitude that needs to be joined to zealous outward action governed by God's word. Well, Micah lists three things in verse 8. The first of those is to do justice. And that is a word that in this case probably points to the second table of the law especially. The covenant obligation that we have in the way we treat our neighbour and especially those of the household of faith. So that what is being said here is that uh, justice is something that uh, right treatment of others, right and just and good treatment of others, is to be done not just a matter of hearing it and paying lip service to it, but there is to be an action, uh, there is to be a certain behaviour that comes out of and reflects God's character and uh, acceptance of his statutes and judgments. So covenant faithfulness is not just a matter of outward ceremonies like baptism or in the Old Testament circumcision. It's not just a matter of outward ceremonies, but it's a whole of life thing that involves this first aspect of it, applying the second table of the law throughout your life to how you deal with other people. The second thing is to love kindness. 
And here we start to move more into that inner attitude. Because this command to love kindness, this is a matter of a selfless commitment, love, to first, to God's kindness. Because this is this great word that you find in the Old Testament, in some ways the most significant word in the Old Testament, God's chesed, uh, his loving kindness as the NASB translates it, meaning his mercy, his pity, his grace, his loyalty, his kindness, a whole lot of things all lumped in together. Selfless commitment to the loving kindness and mercy and loyalty of God, which in turn creates in us a loyalty and a love of God, which in turn creates in us a love and a loyalty towards our neighbour and especially those of the household of faith. This is then a first table issue that creates in us an attitude that then grounds our actions that have to do with the second table. Then there is the third thing, walking humbly with your God. Another first table matter concerning your relationship, your attitude to the Lord. Uh, Verse 8 already hinted at this by stating that he has told you, O man, what is good. And even that that wording points in the same way because uh, God is saying, as it were, don't forget You are just man. Who are you, O man? You're just Adam, man. Finite, a sinful creature who should be humbly submitting to the word of God in your thoughts, in your words, in your deeds, and in your attitudes. From an attitude of obedience to our rightful Lord and also that which arises out of love for God, and gratitude to him as our Redeemer. These, then, are God's covenant requirements in summary form, given to a people who had been forgetting them. And these are the things that God, through his prophet, wants to focus on to bring the people back so that they understand what the covenant basically requires of them. And that word requirement is also an important one. It means what he asks back from us. And it doesn't mean what God asks back by way of compensation, as if you can offer your thousand rams dipped in 10,000 rivers of ceremonial oil and say, well, I've now compensated God, so we're we're square, we're even. Uh, It's not meant in that sense, but what he asks back in this case is talking about how we respond back that response of thankfulness for the fact that God has saved us in the Lord Jesus Christ. A response that is then also founded, built on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is this doable? Is it doable for the covenant people of God to live according to these requirements? Well, yes, with his help, with the Lord Jesus Christ as your foundation with the help of his word and spirit, we can make a start in loving God, expressing gratitude to him by serving him and seeking the welfare of our neighbour. 
And this response also can be made acceptable for all the flaws that it has and the weaknesses and the sin as we try to do those things. It is also doable because it is made acceptable to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not doable apart from that. But what about the covenant children? Those who don't understand these things, not in any uh, formal sense, in any, uh, in any way that they can express. Well, in answer to that, I'd like to note that God had already placed this demand on the covenant children in the Old Testament. Not just the demand that they be physical Jews. And uh, this is a very common mistake in Baptistic theology that uh, the idea is that all that was really required in the Old Testament was to be physically a Jew and then you were automatically a member of the covenant and that was the main thing. No, here in this passage we see very clearly that being a member of the covenant in the Old Testament, something that was addressed to the whole covenant community, including the children, being a covenant member meant not only going through a few outward ceremonies like circumcision, but it also meant a whole-of-life thing which involved an attitude towards God, a love of God, serving Him and responding to that, following through also with the way that you treat other people. And that was laid on the children in the Old Testament by God as well as on the adults. And it's laid on us today in exactly the same way, which is why the Scripture addresses the children and addresses promises to them, as in Ephesians 6, as well as... God's requirements in how they treat others. Those things already laid upon the covenant children in the New Testament too, as well as on the adults. The requirement is the same on covenant children as on covenant adults. It is the same as you go from Old Testament, essentially the same, to New Testament. So why would you expect that somehow the children today can't possibly participate in these things. Why assume that it is more impossible now than it was when God first commanded these things of his people in the Old Testament? In the Old Covenant, children were not born with understanding of these, these things that they could use from the moment they were born to give a credible profession of faith, which I also didn't hear from Ari today, no credible profession of faith coming from his mouth at this point. They weren't able to do that in the Old Testament either. So they had to be nurtured in these things. They had to be nurtured in the covenant promises. They had to be nurtured in the covenant obligations. If they grew up and rejected those things, eventually they would be cut off as covenant breakers. Some would be cut off in this life, some in the next. And the same is true today. Children are nurtured in the promises and the obligations. The first and the second table matters. On the importance of a good and right attitude, in careful thoughts and words and deeds, in the danger of empty formalism and ritualism. And if they finally reject what is good and refuse to walk humbly with their God, then they will eventually be cut off as covenant breakers, either sooner or later. And the same is true for adults in the covenant. 
Still, the Lord, and this is a key point in, in seeing this, I think, uh, the, the place of children in the Old and the New Covenant, the Lord graciously gives time to his people. In that covenant relation, he gives time to his people under the promise and under that call to covenant obedience. And that is why it was possible in the Old Testament and in the New, why it is possible for children to have that place in the covenant community. Because God gives them time to understand these things and to grow in their response to them. There is time for covenant children to learn. There is even time for hypocrites, adults in the covenant community. There is even time for them to repent. And there is time also for all of us to grow in our knowledge of God's requirements. But let us make the most of that time by doing justice, loving kindness, walking humbly with our God and teaching our children like Ari to do the same. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us all to grasp the basic requirements of your covenant and uh, also for parents to teach this to their children. We pray that you would give Justin and Janie the uh, ability and the grace to do so with Ari as well. And Father, we thank you that you give us time to learn these things and time for our children to learn these things. You graciously teach us progressively by word and spirit. And when we are slow to learn, and even sometimes for a time hold out in some areas and refuse to be obedient, you are patient and long-suffering. But Father, do not let us abuse your patience by simply going through outward motions. Would you give us and our children a heart for you? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We ask the Lord to uh, guide our covenant children, Ari and the other ones in our congregation as well, in his holy covenant ways. Hymn 415, we'll stand to sing, and would you please remain standing for the blessing and doxology. 415.
after the blessing as our doxology, we sing number 231 and uh, also I'd uh, ask if the Wunderworths could uh, remain at the front of the church so that if anybody would like to give them some uh, words of encouragement afterwards, uh, you're free to do so. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.